Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got a really fun episode today. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah, the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and the founder of Data Points, which provides technology enabled financial psychology tools to enhance wealth building. In today's show, we look back at some of the key takeaways from her father's book, The Millionaire Next Door, one of the most impactful personal finance books ever written. Sarah shares what's changed, what's stayed the same since the book was published back in 1996, and how you can try to install these traits in your kids today. Then we move on to her company, Data Points. Sarah explains how she's able to help advisors learn their clients' individual financial personalities and how to coach them to make better financial decisions. She shares some of the best practices from working with advisors, how much of this is nature versus nurture, and some of the main differences between the genders. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Whether it's their monthly market wrap, top 10 visuals resource deck, or their quarterly economic summary, YCharts consistently arms advisors with the content and tools they need to turn their investment strategies into powerful discussions that truly resonate with clients. With Q1 behind us, YCharts will soon release their economic update visual deck covering topics ranging from market insights to interest rates, macroeconomic data, all packaged in a client-friendly PowerPoint deck that easily breaks down trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. See how YCharts can be your go-to resource for discussing the state of the markets. With templates and downloadable visuals, you can seamlessly incorporate into proposal reports or presentations to not only engage, but also to educate clients on their financial goals. Click on the link in the show notes to grab your copy of the visual deck and follow along when you register for YCharts Economic Update Q1 2024 webinar on May the 2nd. Don't forget, get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial and tell them Meb sent you new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Data Points, Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We did a poll, as I uh, love to do on Twitter, but we did one a few years ago. And I said, you know, there's no like one investing book that the traditionally, you know, I hand to people like a high school, college age kid says, I want to get an interested in investing. What do I do? And usually it's a smattering of recommendations, but I asked the audience, I said, okay, we're going to do like five categories. And while this, the show note links listeners, the post was called learn to invest your series that was your father originally did back in the nineties. And then the most recent was right at the top of the list. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you remember this book being written when you were a kid? Cause you're pretty young like me. Well, I'll take that. Um, yes, absolutely. So he, uh, my father started that research back in the eighties, nineties began, looking at how people built wealth over time. And so, you know, at some point he left his 
career at a university and went out and started consulting and and he's had already been writing books but you know really sort of took a leap of faith with this one and um put together you know again this profile of people that you know before that people thought you know millionaires and those that are wealthy just had some magic magic formula that no one could find but he really kind of dispelled those myths this book series, The Millionaire Next Door, your recent update, The Next Millionaire Next Door, really chronicled some some surprising takeaways, you know, part of which I think would like to hear too, sort of how it's changed over the years, but maybe just give us a broad overview of the thesis kind of and findings of the book, both in the 90s and the, the more recent version. When did the next one come out? 20? Right, 2018. Yep. So in the, you know, the original that came out in 1996, so I was in college at the time, so I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to what my dad was doing. But, you know, again, the original kind of thesis was that those that are wealthy often are building that wealth on their own. And you more than likely don't recognize them, right? They're not showy. They're not kind of showing off their wealth. They tend to be those that are frugal. They're building wealth over time. And so, you know, again, that book really captured seven different kind of traits of the wealthy. And then throughout the years after that, my father wrote several other books looking at, again, millionaire populations, decamillionaires as well, looking at kind of characteristics. And then this last book that we began before he passed away. So kind of the the research and the the background on it to look at sort of what had changed and what had stayed the same. And that was really the focus of The Next Millionaire Next Door. And not surprisingly, a lot of those characteristics like being conscientious and being frugal and all those things uh, tended to still be important in building wealth. You know, some of the numbers obviously have changed, right? It was published in 2018. The original was 1996. So some of the things had changed in terms of like home ownership and so forth. But Really, those characteristics are timeless. Uh, and again, you see that in academic research as well. We know that, you know, people that, again, that are able to create plans, follow through on them, that save a significant portion of their income, all those kinds of things lead to building wealth over time. How much input was there, or none at all, of like the romping, stomping 90s investment? you know, arena that kind of came out not at the peak, but on the up ramp versus, you know, the the 2000s, really from 2000 to 2000, you know, through the GFC was was rough sledding. Did that have a huge impact on the composition or style of how people, you know, got to this millionaire status level? Or was it more of an aside? I think it was more of an aside. I mean, at least again, from you know, not having done the original research, if you look back and you kind of see the profile of those that built wealth on their own, it was, you know, kind of a combination, again, of this kind of frugal business owner, right, in some kind of nondescript industry, combined with some level of investing and often with a financial advisor, right? So they're not necessarily doing that on their own. Um, They do, you know, tend to pay for and find professionals that they trust. So yes, it had something to do with it. Certainly, um, you know, they they were able to grow that wealth over time as well, what they were saving. But again, I think it all starts with it, you know, transforming income into you know savings, and then that into wealth. Yeah, I mean that point you make right there, the concept of income and the concept of wealth, 
you know, particularly the young cohort, I don't think they appreciate as much. How much was the impact of, you know, being their own sort of business owner versus just real estate? Like what were the main drivers for these group that you guys researched? And and how many did you guys, did you look at a totally new um, data set for the second one? And then how many people were you guys looking into? Yeah. So each of the books, again, including like The Millionaire Mind and the others, they always included a new set of data. So a new survey was conducted for each of those years, which is kind of interesting because then you can kind of, again, look at that, look at those trends over time too. So I think in the, the I'd have to remember exactly, but in the latest sample, there were somewhere, you know, near 700 millionaires total. And, you know, in, in the original, I think it was somewhere around 1300. I may be wrong about that, but somewhere in that neighborhood. Is it a majority business owners or is it, you know, people doing it through this, their house? The house has always been a big one, kind of forced savings. You know, I think that generally what we see is there's a pretty, um, pretty even distribution, if you will, of business owners, as well as um, C-level executives, and then some, you know professionals as well. So that tends to be what is seen in the data. In the original, it, there were a couple of different samples that he included, particularly business owners. So that was actually one of the sub-samples, if you will, that was kind of brought into, into the book. But yeah, you know, again, it just it just depends on on the path. I think that was one of the I, for me again, not having done the original research, that was one of the more interesting things that I found was that again, there are all of these unique paths, and while there are some you know tried and true ways of building wealth, it doesn't mean that you have to do it exactly the way you know someone's prescribing. Um, whether it's you know I've decided to be a teacher, but that means that my lifestyle is going to have to be a little bit different in order to build wealth or I want to start my own business, that kind of thing. So I think for me, again, being a psychologist, that was one of the more interesting trends that I that I saw from, from the research. Yeah. Any main surprises? And it could have been in either book or just the, the latter one. As you guys kind of sift through the data or look at it, anything stands out for you personally? It may not be industry-wide surprise, but something for you where you're just like, huh, that's kind of a, a head scratcher to me. Because like the first book, to me, at least it felt like, you know, the world of, of the millionaire is more accessible than most people think. And it's not this like golden pedestal that either you're gifted all this money or it magically you have to hit the lottery. Like it's like very attainable. But that was more of a revelation. But I feel like that's becoming more well known. But what surprised you? Yeah, you know, I think what surprised me is that many millionaires will say that their parents are frugal. But at the same time, if you're sort of first generation wealthy, you often have a hard time not letting your kids see that or, or, or you know, you're, you're wanting them to maybe not have to suffer through the things that you had to do in order to build wealth. So that continues to be sort of a, again, now that we have children and we're seeing that same challenge for those that are able to build wealth, right? So if if I spent my entire lifetime, you know, trying to accumulate wealth and then I have children, how do I make sure that they kind of have those same experiences in a way that's maybe positive that allows them to also have the same characteristics and experience that allowed them to build wealth too? So I think... How do we do that? I, I, I need the answer, <laughs> I need Sarah. The answer I got a that. five-year-old and my, you know, we spent yeah. actually a lot of time on the show talking about that concept of, you know... People spend so much time, you know, 
optimizing on how to make money, they get it, but also, you know, their children, you know, may have an entirely different upbringing than, than you did, right? And in many cases, many of the, the millionaires you talk about were frugal, they came from nothing. How do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of things. Number one, you know, definitely saying no is something that has to be in your vocabulary when you have children and you want them to be able to build wealth on their own. Um, I struggle with that. Thankfully, my my husband is a little more um, better. He's better at saying no than I am. So, you know, I think that that's one thing that we see consistently. And then also having them, you know, learn about money early. I know that that's something that you talk about, but, you know, certainly helping them understand how to save for something, you know, that they don't, you know, just automatically receive whatever it might be. In our household right now, we have teenagers and uh, preteens. And so the Stanley Cups, not the Stanley Cup from hockey, but Stanley Cups, the, you know, $40 water bottles are are the hot topic. So, yeah, you might have to save for that. That's not something that we're just going to go out. And, we have 100 water bottles in our house. So, you know, simple things like that, you know, again, allow them to see what it takes in order to actually acquire the things that they have. Again, I think that, you know, most of us kind of succumb to the, you know, what everybody else is doing, the FOMO kind of mentality from time to time, but it's even harder for those that are adolescents or teenagers. Um, So just recognizing that and, you know, helping them understand that you felt that too, right? Like we, I get it, you know, everybody around me has a brand new car. Maybe I want one too, but I've got to kind of be patient or, you know, we should be happy with what we have, whatever kind of, you know, works for your family has to be discussed and talked about with, you know, with children as well. Yeah. You know, trying to figure out tying together scarcity is where, as well as like, you know, putting them through some, some struggle as long as they're safe, I think is a thoughtful approach. I was going to say with the Stanley cups, I was like, you just need to drag them to a few financial conferences and go pick up some swag. They have like the Yeti tumblers at like every booth, just uh, bring them along. I was just thinking in my head as you're talking about like expensive things, unbeknownst to me, it's been a long time since I did some Legos and we're, we're knee deep in them now, but um, talk about any private business I would rather invest in than a uh, Lego company. I think that's uh, maybe Chick-fil-A. Those are, the, those are my two private um, you know, ones I'd love some shares in. All right. So listeners, there's a lot to dig in. I, you, know, you guys know I'm a quant stats guy. So um, pick up the book. There's a lot of topics that you can flip through that I think are interesting and thoughtful. I want to talk a little bit about data points. You know, your background and what you studied and the letters after your name imply a slightly different, you know, take on the financial world. Tell us a little bit about what kind of your focus has been and a little bit about data points. Yeah. So, you know, again, coming from really the research that started with my father's work, um, we created again, a lot of different surveys, and he certainly created them as well. And data points has taken those, a lot of those items, questions from the surveys and created behavioral assessments to understand, you know, again, our mindset when it comes to things like spending and saving and investing. And so that's what we've created. We have a lot of different tests. You can take them on our website and all that good stuff. But you know, our, our platform and sort of our business model is one where we help financial planners, financial advisors really understand their clients, understand their attitudes and personality when it comes to making financial decisions. And so that's, you know, that's what we've built today and that's what we continue to study. So we constantly have this data coming in, looking at, again, things like, you know, what does it take to build wealth? And, and we do that from a personality perspective. 
You guys have a slightly different take on this. So I'd love to kind of dig deep here for a little while. You know, the traditional financial advisor, I think, really leads with like a risk questionnaire. And, you know, they say, here, here's your asset allocation. Here's your tolerance. Here's how much money you're going to lose in these Monte Carlo simulation, whatever it may be. And you have a slightly different way to think about this. Can you kind of like talk a little bit about y'all's framework and we'll hop all, all over the place? Yeah, that's great. So we view, you know, all of us is having a job um, that's managing our financial lives. And then we kind of a specific job that we have is investor, right? So we are, we're all, let's say investors to some extent. And there are certain characteristics that allow us to be really good at a long-term investing strategy. And that's how we've created um, a risk tolerance assessment is really looking at a client's life experiences, their patterns of behaviors, and how they react emotionally, how much confidence they have in their decision-making. And that's how we help advisors and their clients understand their overall, what we call, you know, psychological risk tolerance. And that's kind of, again, a little bit different than some models. Uh, we kind of follow after, you know, Grable and Litton, uh, Dr. John Grable is on our advisory board. It's, a, again, a psychometric approach to earn, understanding how we invest and how we might be investing in the future. So we try to predict what clients will do based on all of those things. How much of this is preordained? Meaning, you know, come out of the womb. So ignore the genetics, like behavioral side, but just like you get two parents if you're lucky, but your upbringing and sort of the your formative first 15 years, 16 years, is that like, how much of that defines us? I mean, is it all, is it half? How does it, I mean, it has to for everyone, but impact how we, how we think about the world. Yeah. So the way that we sort of describe this is again, nature, nurture, right? So we, you know, if, if there's sort of a range of risk tolerance, we're probably born with a range. It might be low, medium or high, right? Within that kind of universal range. But the way that we experience life and our caregivers and maybe, you know, watching our parents perhaps lose everything in the stock market or seeing some really early positive experiences with investing, that's going to ultimately shape where we fall within our range, right? And so that it really is a combination of, again, our DNA, but also our early life experiences. And um, I, I think that, again, when, when we're thinking about raising kids, we're back to that topic again, but it's why, you know, talking through things that happen within your family can be so important. So you can explain what's going on and, and why things are the way that they are, especially related to investing. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of, you know, people or investors and how you kind of bucket them. I don't know if this is a good time to hop on to the money traits or where, but I'll let you guide this as you see fit. But what are some of the the process you use at data points to help advisors navigate this area? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of the sort of more traditional ways of thinking about investors. So, right, our, our risk preference, which is, you know, just what, what we want in our portfolios as well as risk personality. Those tend to be the two that are traditionally used. So we, we do use them as well because we see that they actually predict what an investor will do in the future. But the kind of the, the few that we add into that are based on academic research and our own research 
in terms of what predicts what investors will do. Like, what will I do during a down market? Will I buy, sell, or hold? And that's what we're trying to, again, predict. And so we look at a couple of different things. First and foremost, we look at what we call volatility composure. That's the emotional side of investing. Um, you know, again, it's nor it's normally distributed throughout our population, right? So some of us are going to be fearless. We're not going to experience those negative emotions very much, but others of us will, and will want to feel better. And we may want to take action when we shouldn't. And so we measure that. Also, confidence, of course. You know, again, as you know, overconfidence can be a bad thing. But we've got to have some level of like feeling like I can actually make good decisions in order to be a good investor. And so we measure that in a couple of different ways. And then we also look at really an investor's attitude about long-term investing. Do they view investing as something that is you know designed for the future? Or are they thinking, okay, this is something I want to do and actively be involved in and trade frequently? And they kind of more align it more with something like gambling versus investing. And so if you have more of that short-term view, you're more likely to take action when the market goes down because you, you know, that's something that you um, are used to doing as well. So those are kind of some of the things that we look at when we try to, again, our, our goal is to predict what a client will do so that we can help guide them to, to do something that's more, you know, again, beneficial for them. And so those are some of the things that we use to do that. So how is the average financial advisor that kind of goes through this, works with you guys, how are they using it? Is there a traditional use case? Is there a way that like 80% of them kind of use this information? Give us some insight. Yeah. So I would say that the majority of the advisors that use our assessment are using them, you know, first and foremost to, you know, help them help inform what their asset allocation should be. So that's, you know, kind of the check the box piece of it. But the Really where we're seeing, again, more adoption for tests like this is in those conversations with clients. So if I find out, for example, that my client is scoring low on volatility composure, I'd like to have a conversation with them so that I can understand that. Um, So we give them interview questions that they can use to dive a little bit deeper, to learn a little bit more, again, about their life experiences or whatever it might be, so that I can then take that information and give them really a tailored sort of resource guide or nudges or recommendations to help them improve. Um, Again, we were talking about nature versus nurture. Most of these things that we're measuring are stable characteristics, but they can change somewhat over time, especially if you have, you know, if you're working with someone that's going to be, you know, helping you and change and adopt new habits and things like that. So that's the typical use case is, again, using that kind of one piece of information, the overall risk tolerance score, but then using the detailed insights for conversation, for tailoring the client experience. Yeah. You know, what comes to mind, there's a funny story. My buddy, Dan Egan, who is at Betterment and has has a sort of unlimited sandbox in which to conduct experiments or whatnot. But he tells a story where, you know, they were sending out an email about, hey, don't worry, this market volatility is normal. The stock market, you don't have to worry about it. Like, this is what's happening. And, you know, a certain cohort was like, wait, I should be worried? Like, what, what, I, why, why are you even emailing me? And so, you know, it's interesting. Like, I foresee sometime in the future, and that could be now, but getting there where you're coming almost like, bug- I mean, people do this sort of um, already, like, 
for the last hundred years, you got your nervous Nelly clients and they kind of do it, you know, just, just casually, but thinking on a much more systematic basis where almost like your various communications or no communication, some clients are like, just leave me alone. I don't want to hear about it. Just tell me once a year I'm okay and we'll move on and thinking how to interact with people. Cause, cause like you mentioned that there's a lot of scripts when people, you start the loop of, you know, some money experience. It just like, it like turns on a little machine and it's almost like it just plays out according to a software program. I foresee like a, a time in the future where, uh, you know, you could kind of just plug that in and hopefully optimize on good behavior, but people are always crazy with money. So I don't know. Yeah. I know that that story that Dan has told um, for sure that, that if you're reaching out, like you said, to clients that already feel that way, that are going to like naturally get nervous, it can have a detrimental effect. So, so knowing that, and then being able to tailor the kinds of communication that you're giving to your client. I, I certainly, we see that in FinTech that that's sort of the way things are heading. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, again, that's, that's the reason that you want to get to know your client at a, sort of a deeper level too. As you think about these personality traits, you know, how often are they overwhelmed by what's going on in the world? I mean, the most recent example, obviously, is COVID, pretty crazy time. And, you know, for the older cohort, the global financial crisis as well. Are there times when the actual sort of state of what's going on in the world overwhelms, like, you know, how people think? Because I, I feel like there's entire years and decades where it's like one regime that everyone's used to and, and currently kind of like thinking about our almost our entire lifetime, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, it was interest rates coming down in the U.S., and all of a sudden we have a new environment, which is interest rates running up and, and higher inflation. What's the interplay between those two and who wins in the end? Yeah, exactly. Well, so thinking about, and you mentioned this, so like the state piece is sort of how we are feeling right now, right? So how do I feel today about investing? And that does tend to change depending on what's happening in the environment or what's happening in my life. So, but you know, their feelings, their moods, there's a lot of different terms for them, but they don't tend to be the kinds of things that will predict what I might do in the future. But at the same time, that stable characteristic we just talked about, that volatility composure, some, you know, others call it kind of the emotional side of investing or neuroticism is another, you know, personality term for it. But um, that does indicate kind of how often a client might feel those negative emotions, right? So if, you know, everyone's sort of, up, you know, worried about investing today, the clients that are scoring low on that volatility composure, they're even more worried, right, than your average client. So they do interact, they do kind of play together, if you will. But again, if we're trying to, and that's our goal at Data Points, is to predict what a client's going to do and help them make the best decision they can, then we want to, again, we want to still focus on those stable characteristics. Are there any sort of unique, as anyone who runs a company often knows, like you have this offering or service, and then people sometimes will use it in a way you weren't expecting. So meaning, like as you've worked with advisors over the years, are there any insights learned where you're like, oh, okay, I wasn't really expecting you to use this this way. But, you know, my thinking is largely they're using it, A, on the onboard. Okay, I want to understand who you are, what drives you. B, 
on the kind of continual communication and keeping you behaving or said differently, not doing really dumb stuff. Um, but also maybe perhaps putting in systems in place that say, okay, well, let's put these roadblocks or, you know, kind of Taylor calls them nudges that just push right. you in a slightly different direction. Are there any kind of takeaways as you've iterated over the years that are interesting? Yeah. So, you know, we, when we first started, we were very focused, like I said, on prediction, like how can we predict what the clients are going to do? But then shortly thereafter, and especially like early on, we worked with a lot of, I would say, younger advisors that were advising maybe clients that were new to financial planning, new to investing. And they really um, helped us to create a tool inside the tool that would allow for those nudges. So if my client is scoring, let's say, low on a certain area, investor confidence, how can I kind of help them on a weekly basis, kind of in an automated way, improve in that area? Maybe I want them to read five minutes of an investing, you know, related website or something like that. And so, you know, we've that's been really cool to see if our advisors kind of adopt that. Um, again, not not all advisors are comfortable doing that and having that as part of their process, but um, certainly those that have sort of more of a focus on coaching are, are, you know, open to that. And then I think the other thing that, again, maybe is surprising, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, is just how often our, our advisors, and we're seeing them use it this way, are comparing, you know, spouses, right? Because we're all unique. You know, we've, we keep, every time someone starts to use, you know, working with us right away, they'll say, well, can I just give one test and can both members of the household take it? Well, no, because we're all unique. We all have a unique profile. And so we do see advisors using those insights to anticipate, again, where there might be disagreements or, the, again, the clients aren't on the same page, whatever it might be. Um, and so we're seeing that as well in terms of sort of a surprise, if you will. How often are the financial advisors incorporating this for themselves? And meaning we have over 140,000 investors and it's the full span, retail, institutional advisors. And I like to say, you know, the the big dudes are just as bad at some of the um, emotional investing problems as retail is. You know, they love to chase performance. So I wonder how many uh, advisors actually would benefit from saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm coming to my practice or I'm coming to this with my own biases already and trying to work with like, you know, me and working with these clients may be different than someone who comes with these, you know, traits working with, you know, the other type of clients is, is there a uh, much feedback on any of the say, you got to go through this program too and help you out. I love that. Yeah. No, you know, in terms of you know, the last time we did sort of a looking at the data for like, for, for example, financial planners, we, for the most part, we saw that they were, you know, really solid investors from a personality perspective, right? We, they, they looked like, again, what we would call, you know, a high profile, you know, from a, like I said, from a personality perspective, I think where we, and again, if you talk to anyone from like the financial therapy world or any of those things where advisors could benefit even more so is around things like money beliefs, um, like money scripts and things like that. We have the, the Klontz money scripts inventory on our platform too. We partner with Dr. Brad Klontz where there are some sort of hangups about money that they maybe haven't dealt with that then they're bringing into the relationship with their client. You know, 
that's sort of different than talking about sort of investing related characteristics. But I do agree with you that that those that are sort of, you know, looking for returns and things like that, they would probably be a little, they, they might score a little differently on that investor profile. But the money beliefs and kind of our money experiences can impact, you know, our biases about our clients too. And so that's often why financial therapists will recommend for advisors to kind of uncover some of those things about themselves before they're meeting with clients. One of the things that I think is interesting is we spend so much time thinking about as advisors and investors, how to save money, how to invest it. And very little time is spent thinking thoughtfully about how to spend it. You know, a lot of the investors who have a financial advisor, the people that are millionaires have already, quote, won the game. You know, they're at a good place in life. They have disposable income and wealth, but they were also never really taught all the, you know, these money scripts that play out and and hurt us or help us, you know, but whatever guide us down a certain path on the investing side, you know, may not roll over into like how to thoughtfully spend it too. How often is there a strong amount of tension between, say, couples, you know, where, all right, you have two people, they have totally opposing, you know, traits as far as how they think about money. I mean, I think my personal experience, my parents could not have come from two different worlds when it came to this and it, it caused them a lot of stress. How do you guys think about that? Is anything anything people can do other than <laughs> understanding? Right. I mean, I think, you know, certainly under, you know, taking some time to understand each person, each member of the household background, their experience can be very helpful. I know that when we were creating a, our retirement approach assessment, so we kind of looked at like what you expect for a retirement, what you want to do in retirement. Um, I, of course, made my husband take it because he's the guinea pig for anything that we do here. And when we both took it and compared our results, we realized we were not on the same page. And again, we're not you know super near retirement, but it led to some you know, some conversations about what, what we're really do- like, you know, why are we doing all of this? Why, why are we working and saving and all those things? And I think, again, you know, certainly having some objective or third party kind of step in to say, hey, this is how you guys are viewing things. Now let's have a conversation about, you know, maybe how you can get on the same page is, is useful and helpful. I don't necessarily have data on, you know, how many clients are are similar in terms of like their personality and things like that. But again, we know that uh, money conversations and money disagreements can is, you know, one of the key causes for divorce and things like that. So again, as an advisor or a professional working with a couple, if you don't know what some of those disagreements are from the get-go, you may be, again, speaking only to one member of the household. Like if you start talking about, for example, again, just using an example from those that are tend to be younger, newer to, to financial planning, but if you go into a conversation, you're talking about budgeting and one of the members of the household loves that, had great experience growing up with budgeting, you know, thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. And the other member of the household is shut down. They're blank stare. You know, that was not a great experience for them growing up. Maybe they had, you know, an overly, you know, frugal, let's say, parent that that made life really hard. You know, not knowing that in advance can really lead to some, you know, just right off the bat, having a negative experience with an advisor. So 
you know, again, whether you use a tool, a test or an interview question, maybe with your, with couples, um, you know, something to help understand where each member is coming from can be useful. Can we make any broad generalizations about men and women and how they, uh, you know, they come to this or is it uh, too random to, to, to make those sort of summaries? Good question. You know, there there are. You know, I've been asked this a lot lately. Um, you know, there there are differences in terms of personality between you know men and women. Um, you know, again, even identity roles and things like that when it comes to personality, and certainly that impacts money as well. We did a study a couple of years ago looking at you know gender differences and spousal different roles in the household. Right, so. Oftentimes, men end up, if, if that's the kind of relationship that you're dealing with, uh, men end up being um, in charge of investing related decisions. And, you know, the woman in the, in the household is often kind of just nodding, nodding her head and, and, and agreeing, but may not feel empowered, uh, may not feel like, again, she's getting ed- educated about investing and things like that. And I think that that's somewhere or rather a place where advisors can really, you know, help and and provide resources that are geared toward each member of the household in order to empower both of them in those kind of decisions. Yeah. You guys have a good paper. Hopefully we can link to it in the show notes, Understanding Great Investors that walks through some findings that I think are, are pretty interesting. As people can go to your data points, they can sign up for a free trial. Is the main customer financial advisors or are there other offshoots that uh, are really interested in kind of what you guys are doing and, and can incorporate into the world too? Yeah, you know, definitely financial planners. Um, certainly we work now with a lot of financial coaches and also coaches of advisors. So those that are helping advisors grow their practice and becoming more comfortable with some of those conversations that, again, thinking about a couple, right, that that can can be a little more challenging that aren't necessarily the dollars and cents and, and the numbers. Um, so those uh, tend to be our main customers. We're also seeing Again, more, I would say life coaches or those that are even outside of the financial world beginning to use our assessments as well. But those they tend to be the ones that are focused in on really understanding, you know, again, financial personality. Is this all set in stone? Do people change? Like, you know, once they kind of have these childhood beliefs, I don't know if you guys have ever even looked at this, but like looking at people, you know, over time, are they able to adapt and improve or is, I mean, improve is the wrong word because it kind of is what it is, but, or is it more just people who are kind of, kind of set? I'm just, I'm thinking in my head is like maybe the 20 year old me might've had a different approach than the 45 year old me. Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, you certainly can change. Um, and we see that, you know, even if what we call an intervention isn't conducted, right? So at, you can think about maybe older people in your life that have become nicer as they've gotten older or meaner, I don't know, you know, whatever it might be. So certainly things can change. But often if you want to see quick change, or I would say um, more significant change, that will take some kind of intervention, whether that's a coaching engagement, or again, like we were talking about nudges, things like that. We work with um, a financial coach who uses money scripts, for example, to walk her clients through, you know, essentially rewriting a script, rewriting a money belief so that they can have a more positive experience and make better decisions. 
but that takes time, right? And 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 so, and it also kind of takes some effort on our part too to change. So no, things aren't set in stone. I'm thankful that the 20 year old me is not <laughs> making some decisions right now, um, for sure. No, it's fascinating. It's hard because I mean, 100 years, whatever everyone's expectancy is now seems like a really long time, but there's so many unique and different macro environments. You know, if you ask someone who has lived in a country with like hyperinflation or an emerging market where the currency has declined or, you know, all these different environments, the U.S., despite its, you know, pretty wide range of outcomes over the last hundred years is still probably much more stable rather than in other countries too. And it's interesting how these kind of play out over time and who knows what we'll be talking about in 10, 20, 50 years when it comes to some of these topics. While we're still on the, the kind of uh, topic of data points, anything else that we missed that I think is particularly insightful or interesting that you think would be worth touching on in this area? I think the only other thing I'll say is most firms, right, do some kind of client survey. They're trying to find out about, you know, whether the service or satisfaction with their advisor or things like that. Again, whether you're using our test or another test or some kind of form you've put together yourself, those are things that you can measure. You can measure, you know, characteristics. You can learn more about your own clients, and uh, that can inform marketing. You know, more at a global level versus just at the individual level. So that's one of the things you know we help our clients do on our platform. But you know, you can certainly do that as well, and that that can help inform again, like the kinds of blogs you write. Right? If I know that most of my clients are scoring low on again, whether it's volatility composure or confidence, how can I help educate them at a group level? So that's something that, again, why assessments can be helpful, but you can certainly do that with other tools as well. So just wanted to mention that. I mean, it's fun having these conversations because I start to think of some ideas just for our own world, part of which is you know, dealing with a lot of institutional investors who you can kind of tell by the questions they're asking that they're going to be a problem in the future. Meaning, so for example, that they're going to, and like, so the performance chasing example, where I almost want to say, look, you know, I'm happy you're buying this fund or partnering up, but I want you to think about these three things now, because when we're having this conversation in six months, I think it'll be additive to your process. So we did, we do a lot of Twitter polls, like I said, and one of them was, do you, establish sell criteria when you make an investment, meaning you buy something and most people, what they do, they buy it and then they just kind of wing it, see how it goes. And that can be fine for a lot of people, but often they see it go down, they start to have some emotions or they see it go up and they start to have emotions. And I think it ends up causing a lot of bad behavior. So I think trying to come up with like a little, not questionnaire, but it's like, hey, here's three points to think about today. When you bought this, thanks for partnering with us. But in six months, when you're like, ah, this fund's underperforming, I say, let's go back to the original list is you bought this with a time horizon of five to 10 years with the full understanding that any active strategy can underperform or outperform in any given year or two years in a row, whatever, sorry, going on a spiel right now, but no one does that, right? It's they kind of just, they jump in the pool and then figure it out afterwards. Well, I was going to say, so I think in the book, Quit, I don't know if you've read that book, but it's dealing primarily right with with like business owners, but it could be anything um, and, and setting up in advance the kinds of or the reasons why you're going to stop what you're doing from an entrepreneurial perspective. It's it's definitely, it's very similar 
in terms of what, you know, an investor should be doing, whether again, it's an institutional investor or otherwise, but right. Because you're not in that emotional state where things are, you know, where, where you're feeling like you've got to take action. And so, you know, but I, certainly can can see that as a small business owner myself, you know, knowing that, you know, hey, here's some criteria that you thought about when you said you were going to start a business. It's very similar. I've heard you say, not that this applies to me, but shouldn't tell your kids we're wealthy. Did you say that? Did I read that? That's what millionaires say, right? That they shouldn't tell them. But I think, again, telling comes in a couple of different ways, right? We can tell them by the things that we're buying again that doesn't always equate to wealth or you can talk about you know what you're making and income levels and things like that but i think because of the way that our brains are wired when we're young when we're adolescents when we're teenagers it doesn't mean the same thing right we 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 take oh you're making $200,000 a year you've got a ton of money because i only need this much to get by so you know that often can lead to just kind of a a myth about the family and and where they are. So yes, we've seen that time and time again from millionaires that they really say, you know, don't don't share that with your with your kids. And again, sharing is there are a couple of different ways to do that too. There's a funny Shaq quote, and he's got a few variants of it, but it's basically when someone asked him about this, he told his kids, he says, "We're not rich. I'm rich." He's like, "You have nothing." He's like, "I have a lot of money, but you have nothing," which I think is thoughtful. But like, there, there's an old phrase and. Maybe you know, but I don't know the origin, but it's basically along the lines of like, show me your calendar and your checkbook and I'll tell you what you care about. And so thinking of like, you know, talking to kids, do as I say or do as I do. I mean, if you live a very ostentatious lifestyle and you project that things you really care about are, you know, material, whatever it may be, I think they, the, the takeaways they pick up on, you know, what you do probably a lot more than just saying, hey, this is how you should think about money. Anyway. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to Shaq. What's the state of personal finance literacy today? You guys have sold millions upon millions of books, helping to educate people about topics of investing and, and how to, you know, thinking about money and the characteristics. Is, has it improved? Is it still impossible? What could we be doing? Yeah, you know, I think a couple of things there. I, I I do see that things are changing, right? So we're we're seeing high schools require classes and things like that. Certainly, there's tons of resources, right? I mean, I think the millionaire next door sort of started a um a trend, if you will, in the in the personal finance uh, book writing business. But you know, I think that even with literacy, it comes there's there's still a lot of personality components to the way we make decisions. And that's, again, self-control, planning ahead, um, not caring about what everybody else is doing. All of those things have to be taught and modeled as well, or the financial literacy is going to fall flat. Meaning even if they're taking classes in high school, but they're still really interested. The you know kids are still really interested in doing what everybody else does. You know, and again, it's not just kids; it's all of us. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. Uh, I'm still going to want to you know have the same cars as everybody around me. So I think it's a combination, um, and I don't see that that's emphasized as much as it should be um, in terms of education. So it's not just knowledge. It's we've got to have kind of the personality side too. 
Yeah, I think um, I'm optimistic. I think it's teachable. I know a lot of people don't, but I'm a, I'm I'm in the cohort that thinks uh, it's it's a we could take a shot. You can take this two different ways. So um, we normally ask the investors on the show what's been their most memorable investment, good, bad, in between. But we can take this with you a, a separate way, and you can pick your path. You could also answer is what's been your most memorable insight from all these studies you've been doing, you know, over the years, um, you know, any main things that really stand out. It could be conversations, sitting down with people, any moments that come to mind? You know, I think what comes to mind is, again, just having individuals that now, now that I'm in the financial services industry coming up to me and saying, you know, I heard your dad speak, you know, however many years ago, or I read The Millionaire Next Door in the 90s, and it's still you know, something that I recommend to other people or it changed my life. I mean, I, I guess that's not maybe really what you're looking for, but I think that, you know, continuing on in this field and and helping people to, you know, again, be able to achieve the goals that they want um, and, and continue the work that my dad started was is probably, you know, it's rewarding, certainly. I guess if I had to pick one of the stories, I still love the story of Dr. North and Dr. South and, you know, how one was really focused on the outward signs of being a doctor and being successful. And the other was, you know, really focused on building wealth. I mean, they really are two different things. And um, that story continues to stick with me. I, I continue to try to teach that to my kids who come home and tell me about all the cars in the high school parking lot. As you look out to the future, 2023, What's on your mind? What are you excited about? What are you guys working on? Anything in particular that behind the curtains or got you worried or confused? What's on the brain? Yeah. So I definitely we're getting more requests for things like AI related to technology tools for financial advisors, which I think is awesome. I think there's so many things that can be done there. I still, um, I think it was, a, I think it's called the creepiness factor. That you know, we do have to remember that clients are people, and that they don't necessarily want their advisor knowing things without them telling them, if that makes sense. So, do I really want my advisor telling me that they know things that I've you know posted on Facebook and that maybe have you know been scraped up? I'm not sure. Um, so, so I think there's a balance there, and I think that again, the financial services industry is going to have to deal with that piece um, because at the end of the day, we're still human. We still want to have a relationship and that AI can help inform it, but um, shouldn't be the sole you know, piece when I'm coming to an advisor in terms of what they know about me. Yeah. Sarah, where do people go? They want to find more from a, for you guys, sign mm-hmm. up for a free trial, read some of your writings, but what's the best spot? Yep. Datapoints.com slash go. And that's where they'll find a test they can take. So you can take a personality test. You can take our retirement test there and learn a little bit more about what we do. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.